my main motto is lean on. I leaned on those women. They made me feel seen and cared for in what could be a quite a cutthroat White House environment. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Today, we welcome Ambassador Samantha Power to Skimmed from the Couch. She is the former United States Ambassador to the United Nations and served in President Barack Obama's cabinet. Before serving as U.S. Ambassador, she was on the National Security Council as Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Multilateral Affairs and Human Rights. Prior to working inside a political administration, Power studied and critiqued foreign policy from the outside as a scholar, activist, and journalist. Her scholarship on genocide culminated in her first book, A Problem from Hell, for which she won the Pulitzer Prize. It's just a a light, casual resume. In her (laughs) new memoir, The Education of an Idealist, I love that title, and spotlights the power of idealism. As she powerfully describes, her idealism was confronted by the hard truths of a complicated world. We are going to get into all of that. We are so excited to have you here with us today, Ambassador Power. Welcome to the couch. Great to be here. So obviously not a light resume, as we just said, but if you could just skim your resume for us, just walk us through from the beginning from like first job to to where you are today. So Irish immigrant came when I was nine to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, grew up dreaming about being a sportscaster. (laughs) (laughs) So nothing but light in the early years, played sports, talked about sports, thought about sports. What was your sport? My sport was basketball to play, but the sport that I loved and love watching was and is baseball. So got to college and walked onto a sports radio talk show and covered the college basketball teams on radio and in print. As I'm listening to you talk, I'm like, I could totally yeah. hear you doing sports. I, uh, this is, was my dream was to be behind <laughs> a microphone, so just not, not talking about genocide. In fact, the summer after my freshman year um, was taking notes at the CBS sports affiliate in Atlanta when the footage from Tiananmen Square uh, came down on the CBS feeds. This was the moment at which the Chinese government cracked down on student protesters in a really brutal way. These young people were met with tanks. So that was a moment of awakening. It was not a pivot point by any stretch. I mean, for me to have said, one day I'm going to be UN ambassador would have been as far-fetched as saying I was going to be on the moon one day. Uh, But it did mean that I went back to college and I began to do other things apart from sports. I made myself vulnerable, went into my classes with more diligence, with more of a willingness to feel dumb, which is never anybody's favorite thing to feel. Um, And so by the end of my time in college, applied for a different kind of internship at a foreign policy think tank in Washington called the Carnegie Endowment. Somehow got that internship. So two internships changed my life. Um, And this second one, uh, which was a year-long internship right out of college, was with somebody who'd been in the U.S. government for 35 years as a diplomat, a 
senior diplomat. So here I was being mentored by him. Um, my name, of course, is Samantha. He called me Susan for the entire year. <laughs> so he didn't really know did he was mentoring me. Did you correct him? I did, did not necessarily <laughs> You know I'm going to call you Susan the rest yeah. of the year. Go, go at it. But in working for him, watching his reaction to anything that was happening in the news, it was always what can be done and what can I, now out of government and in this weird think tank world, what can I use my little perch to try to make happen? And so from there, I uh, worked there for a year. I began to become immersed in what was happening in Bosnia. And after my year with him, I decided to try to move to Bosnia. Uh, because I was a liberal arts major, I, of course, had no skills uh, <laughs> other than having been a sports reporter. And so the one job, the one path to get over there and to learn more and to, again, figure out how to apply this way of thinking that I'd kind of internalized from him, which was, what do you do about something? I felt I had to go there. And this think tank was in the same building as U.S. News and World Report. Everything is a combination of serendipity, I suppose, and stubbornness. But so I marched in in one of those Catherine Hepburn moments. <laughs> I walked into the chief of correspondence office and I said, I want to go and be a stringer for you, a freelance correspondent for you. Ended up making my way over to the Balkans just with a, a kind of tentative commitment from him that he'd take my phone calls. And then once there, a group of young, mainly women, freelance correspondents just embraced me and taught me the ways of the road. It was the opposite of everything I'd heard about cutthroat journalism. The war itself was terrible, of course, but the community was very nurturing. And so I was there for two years, decided after a couple years of then breaking through and writing for the Washington Post and The Economist and The New Republic and other very high profile publications, I thought, you know, even at the height of my career, this is the best I'll be doing. I'll just be a, I'll have health insurance and be doing exactly this. And so I thought maybe I should dedicate myself to doing more than just writing about these events. And so I came back to America in 1995 and I went to law school thinking that maybe one day I could be at The Hague prosecuting the people who were carrying out these kinds of crimes. While in law school, I decided to put the experience I just had in a larger historical context. And I looked into the other cases of genocide and mass atrocity that had occurred in the 20th century, ones I knew very little about going in. In law school for a class, I wrote a paper on American responses to the major genocides of the 20th century. That paper uh, was so long <laughs> that I decided I'm almost at book length and um, took a year off working full time once I graduated from law school, but continued to work on this book. It took me five years, published the book. One of the people who read the book was Senator Barack Obama, who had just won his Senate seat in 2004. He reached out to me in 2005. I went and had dinner with him. Did this you know who he was? I did because I'd seen his convention speech, and I've been very taken by him, and I had been very apolitical in my life prior to going to Bosnia, and it was the first, 2004, the presidential election was the first I'd really been invested in, and John Kerry had lost to President Bush despite the invasion of Iraq and torture, and so I'd been pretty crushed in the wake of the 2004 election to see what I thought were really problematic practices seemingly being affirmed by the election, and yet there was this bright spot in Barack Obama. So when he reached out 
his scheduler said, you know, the next time you're in Washington, I'm like, oh, I just ha- might happen to be, <laughs> have to be in Washington very soon. Thank you very much. Our kind of style. We like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a little a little creative license. So I met him for dinner. And as soon as I sat down with him and he started grilling me on my work, I asked him, was he going to run for president? And he's like, no way. How presumptuous <laughs> would that be? I just got here. There's a lot in there we're going to pick apart. I want to go back to your childhood and how you grew up. You mentioned being an immigrant. And I want you to take us through what your childhood was like. So I went to a Catholic girls' school in Dublin, Ireland. My mother was an amazing athlete as well as a very determined would-be physician. She had been told as a teenager that there was no place for girls or women in medicine. And so she had been diverted from her dream of becoming a doctor and had gone and gotten a basic science degree and then a PhD in biochemistry. But all she ever really wanted to do was treat patients and heal people. So she late in life went back to medical school. So in my childhood, while I was at my Catholic school, she was doing all the grueling rounds of medical school. She was just one of these miracle jugglers, still managed, I felt, to be very present for me, but just one foot in front of the other, an extremely determined woman. To this day, she runs the kidney transplant department at Mount Sinai in New York. She's 76 and still treating patients. If you, any of your listeners have kidney issues, Vera Delaney is her name. Oh Don't tell her I sent you. That's my mother. Then my father was wonderfully loving, in many ways lived for me and my younger brother, but was an alcoholic. And as I got older as a child, his drinking got worse. For me, it had a benefit, if you can even say that, which was he would collect me from school, bring me to the pub. I spent more hours than I can even begin to remember at the pub with him, which has all of the negatives associated with that, of course, but also meant that I was just a few steps away from my dad at all times. One of the things that I was struck by when you wrote in the book was your parents did not have a terrific marriage. And you were very open about that. And I would love for you to talk about how growing up in that environment, as you talk about kind of being exposed to very adult things with your dad, how that shaped you for a career in diplomacy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my first diplomatic gambits were a big failure um, insofar as so many children would do. My fantasy was to broker some kind of reconciliation between my parents, not really able to comprehend what the drink can do when somebody is addicted to anything, how much more powerful that would be than anybody's diplomatic overtures, especially that of a seven-year-old or eight-year-old. But I really, as a kid, I think, just pined uh, for a more traditional family life, one where I could have my brother, my father, my mother together in one place. We came when I was nine to this country, and my father, when we went back as part of the visitation rites, he tried to keep us, and in a kind of dramatic scene, Christmas Eve 1979, when I, again, was nine, my mother came in and effectively pulled my brother and me out from under my father and said, if you want to see the kids, you're going to have to now come to America. My father then didn't come, couldn't come, couldn't get his act together to come, he'd have been the first to say, and then died very suddenly. And so I think the real lasting legacy for me, which I do try to unpack, is 
what does it mean to carry with you a sense of responsibility or a sense of guilt? And kids exaggerate their agency, think of themselves weirdly, right, as both small and dependent on their parents, but also as larger than life, as if they have all of this power. And thus, if they, quote unquote, failed to save somebody, that somehow it's on them. We look at your book, which is sitting next to me right now, The Education of an Idealist. I'm struck by how you were able to construct idealism as such an important part of your identity when you had a really rough childhood. And you then, after going through school, chose a career path where you saw really horrific things that this world can produce. And I think for a lot of people, they could go through that and have a lot of anger or they could be depressed by that. But you didn't do those things. And instead, you really shaped who you are. How does that identity come to be? How do you reconcile that? It's a great question. I think that my idealism has never taken the form of believing that the world is an inherently just place. <laughs> I think it's my idealism is of the form, I suppose, of should we try to make things better? And I think while it's true, I, I had this trauma in my childhood, the trauma of the rupture of my parents' marriage initially, and then the sudden catastrophe for any child of losing my father, who I love so much. But I always, for some reason, also had a sense of my good fortune. I, here I was in America. Everything was big and shiny, and there was more of everything. I didn't have the same anxiety that we had economically as a family in Ireland, as so many families did. But I think you know, to, a lot of people have today an impulse, which is, gosh, the world's really messed up. I want to do something about it. To me, that's idealism. It's it's not that the you see the world through rose-colored glass. Not that you see things as trending right now in the right direction. I mean, you know, whether it's climate change or mass migration or inequality or Me Too. There's just so much that's messed up. But I guess I did have in my mother a model of someone who just got on with it. She just put one foot in front of the other. And so I think my feeling has always been, I'm lucky even if I've had some unlucky chapters, and how am I going to put my good fortune to use because there are other people who don't have the platforms that I have, who don't have the voice, the microphone in front of me as I do right now. And I don't know where that glass half full versus half empty approach comes from, but very quickly in my professional life, I began to see people who were making a difference. And so I think on one level, even if I wasn't always making the difference that I sought to make, I, I always tried to focus on those who were and to say, look, there is a path. I may not be on it right now when I'm, you know, I may be banging my head against the wall, but I have always gravitated towards stories of people who have found a way to transcend stiff odds. I sound like how I feel, which is the holidays have really, they've worked me over. It's been a, a busy season already, and I have not really focused on myself. As a germaphobe, I'm loving sitting next to you reading this right now. And um, but my radio voice is excellent. It's wonderful. But all I keep thinking about is when you're sick, you have to change out your toothbrush because you don't want to reinfect yourself. And then I was thinking... 
oh my gosh, thank gosh we both have Quip because yes. they have the best toothbrush heads that you can continue recycling out. And it's obviously not just for when you're sick, it's good hygiene. Quip is truly our favorite electric toothbrush. Basically their mantra is like, if you have good habits, you're good. I like that. And I'm seeking to have better habits and take better care of myself in the new year. Yes. They also have this great floss dispenser that has pre-marked string to help you have just enough, which is like, I never really thought about how much floss string I waste, but I know I pull too much. (laughs) I do. And moving on, if you go to getquip.com slash skim right now, you'll get your first refill free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash skim. Those cold meds are really (laughs) taking hold of me. Spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash skim. Quip, the good habits company. That's catchy. You were an immigrant and then came to be in a position thinking about immigrants or refugees all over the world. How much of your identity do you attribute to being an immigrant? I definitely have the feeling of there but for the grace of God go I, no question. But I I say that with humility also because I was one kind of immigrant. I was a native English speaker. I didn't have a hard immigrant journey or much to overcome as an immigrant per se, especially when I see whole countries being judged. For example, if an act of terrorism is carried out in someone's country and then the president of the United States decides that everybody of a certain religion or everybody from that country is to be branded because terrorism has been carried out there. I mean. I'm from Ireland. The IRA and British paramilitaries were carrying out terrorism. Had that standard been applied, I wouldn't have been able to come to this country. So I think about it that way. But I think the main sort of quality that I take from my Irish experience specifically is on the importance of dignity. I've come to see the dignity in the individuals that one encounters during the day and to live that equality. When I got to be UN ambassador under Obama, to treat small countries, like a country even smaller than Ireland, let's say, as if they mattered. I went and visited with each of the 191 ambassadors from other countries, and about 50 of those ambassadors had never been visited by a U.S. permanent representative before because they were small countries or they were poor countries. And just to go to ask the individuals who represented those countries, how'd you become a diplomat? You know, What are those books? Why did you bring those books? I think having the Irish fight songs and the Irish poetry, <laughs> yeah. the British occupation, and the idea of dignity being trampled, I think left in me maybe somewhere an appreciation for that idea of being seen fully. So we're going to transition now into when you started to work officially for then-Senator Barack Obama. So hearing you speak now, you are so eloquent and you are so intentional with your words. I want to go back to a time where you made a comment that you regretted when you called Hillary Clinton a, quote, monster while you were on a book tour. That comment caused you to step down from Obama's campaign. What did you learn from that experience? Even if I do choose my words carefully, I am also Irish and hot-tempered, and (laughs) you haven't seen that side of me. Just a little context, we were in the throes of this bitter primary uh, clash with Senator Clinton. I also want to just level set for our audience, because I think that we forget how close that was, that primary. That's Um, really true. 
I remember it as a political geek of every day looking at the developments and the polls, and it was so tight. And I think now, given where they've both gone in their careers, you kind of forget that. So I I also want to give that additional context. Well, that's very helpful from the standpoint (laughs) of my narrative. I appreciate that. Uh, It was really close. So against that backdrop of it getting close, it also got a little heated in a lot of different directions. And I was on a book tour, Maureen Dowd would later say of my book tour, the least successful book tour since the invention of movable type. Oh my God. (laughs) Well, the stakes are really low for this book tour. I have like PTSD though. I keep waiting (laughs) for something terrible to happen on this book tour because of what happened. So I got a call while on book tour in England from campaign associate of mine, Austin Goolsby, one of Obama's economics advisors. And Hillary Clinton's campaign had just taken an attack ad out that featured Austin very prominently. So I kind of hung up I was, I thought, finished with an interview I'd been doing with a reporter with the Scotsman, and I had bonded with her a little bit before the interview because she wanted to go and become a war correspondent, so I'd given her advice, and so I felt way too familiar and friendly, and so really didn't take much notice of the fact that her tape recorder was still running and then vented about Senator Clinton and her campaign, and it hit the news, as you said. It was a unique personal experience of just hitting refresh on your own name, which I never recommend doing anyway, but especially when you're on the verge of becoming a global scandal and to see your name, you know, first 50 hits and then within a couple of minutes, 500 hit, and then suddenly you start to see your name in foreign languages (laughs) and then in like Chinese characters. I had just started dating somebody I'd met on the Obama campaign, Cass Sunstein, who was uh, one of Obama's legal advisors on the campaign. And just in what was on one level a horrible coincidence of timing, but would prove kind of destiny. Cass was on an airplane flying to Ireland where I was when the scandal broke with a ring in his pocket. But he arrives, gets an email from me saying, I've really effed up. I've ruined everything. Obama may lose. The narcissism, also a villainy, is intense. I thought the whole world revolved around me all of a sudden. And um, Cass is like, I'm sure it's no big deal. And then he gets on his computer and it's just, oh my God. You know, he's like, I was everywhere. So what did I learn? I learned. Jewelry can make things better. (laughs) (laughs) Jewelry, no, the jewelry didn't come for a while. Luckily. So I didn't learn about the ring until later. But I did just kind of collapse. I mean, I went from being part of this team. My whole career, I'd worked alone. Suddenly I was on this amazing team, so dedicated. I loved the people I worked with. I loved Obama. I wanted to win, but above all the camaraderie of it. And then suddenly I had to resign. So I was kind of just so vulnerable. And I relied on Cass my whole life, partly because of my dad. I think I pushed people away and I was self-sufficient and I didn't need anybody. And here I just needed him. And he took care of me. And Listeners, I married him. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to get into motherhood on the job. But before we transition, I want to ask you about the kind of wedding present that Richard Holbrook brokered for you or gifted you. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So this amazing positive comes out of the fact that I had to resign the Obama campaign, namely I had to stand still for the first time in my personal life and the first time in my career. And I had nothing to do professionally. I just was a wandering person because my whole life had been built around the campaign and I'd had to resign because I'd done this incredibly stupid thing. But what haunted me was that Senator Clinton could actually think that I thought this about her, that what in print just looks so 
stark and like such a considered judgment, especially from someone who does choose her words carefully generally. I was desperate to somehow reach her and for her to know that I just lost my temper. I'm Irish. You can't I'm just sorry. like go text her. <laughs> no, I wrote letters. I yeah. did all the normal things. But until you've really looked yeah. somebody in the eye, I thought everybody who makes a mistake issues an apology and a rich and so the equivalent for, of a for retraction. our listeners Richard Holbrook was your mentor for many years he was a diplomatic mentor of mine for sure he was also a friend and he came to my wedding which was in Ireland Richard the morning after the wedding said I I have an amazing wedding present I hope you'll find as amazing as I hope it will prove for you and he said I've brokered a meeting I've used my <laughs> The same skills that ended the war in Bosnia back in 1995, I've used to broker a summit between you and Senator Clinton. I take it you didn't register for that. Uh, I, that wasn't on my my registry. No, somehow that would have been a good one though. You couldn't register for experiences then. Uh, yeah. Oh, right. can you now? You yeah, can now. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, so he arranged it in the late summer. I sat down with Senator Clinton. She was very gracious. I got to look her in her in her eyes and just say, "I did not mean this. I lost my temper. <laughs> I am so sorry." And then I got to call Senator Obama and say, "I just met with Senator Clinton. I think we're cool. I think I can come back." Um, this is like a normal like, work day for most people. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, "Wait, wait, wait." Senator Clinton, like, well, how that come about? And then I, I said, well, Richard Holbrook, he brokered it as a wedding present. He's like, wait, 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 what? <laughs> Don't most people get toasters? Yeah. <laughs> what? So you did have a career comeback. You end up being the ambassador during the Obama administration. I want to talk about what it is like to disagree with your boss. For our listeners, a quick skim. The Syrian civil war, which started in 2011, has displaced millions of refugees in need of humanitarian aid, and hundreds of thousands of people have died because of the conflict. Throughout the war, the Assad regime has attacked civilians and committed human rights violations, including using chemical weapons. In 2013, the Syrian regime used chemical weapons and crossed what President Obama called his, quote, red line for using U.S. force. But the administration put military action on hold. And in a risky move, President Obama decided to seek approval from a deeply divided Congress instead. Ambassador, you spent your career arguing that countries have a moral obligation to prevent genocide and obviously end it. How did you reconcile all of that work that you had done with your job was to support what your boss said? I want to take this down to a level most people, when they disagree with their boss, are not doing it on a national stage, and it's not about a global crisis and war, and it's not for the president of the United States. How do you disagree with your boss when it feels wrong? I think for starters, I never felt as if my values and President Obama's values had departed in some fundamental way. I think if I had ever come to that conclusion, it would be a different conversation we'd be having. And so I think that's really important is do you, in the macro, no matter what line of work you're in, do you feel largely aligned where there may arise issues on which you have fundamental disagreements? On Syria, I also felt heard. President Obama didn't always like what he heard. I have scenes in the book where he's saying to me, you're getting on my nerves. And partly he felt, I think, that I was being repetitive. For um, those listening, how do you manage up to get heard? It's a two-way street. President Obama prided himself on a team of rivals approach. He asked me to be in the cabinet. Nobody had ever put a human rights advocate with such views as mine in that kind of position. So he'd already signaled to me and to the rest of the cabinet, 
you know, that he wanted my voice in the room. That's a sort of first order um, background condition that I was blessed to have, I suppose. But it didn't make it easy, right, to figure out when are you going to raise your hand, when are you going to be the skunk at the lawn party to say, no, Mr. President, I don't concur. Every person who served at a senior level in the Obama administration with me, when I asked them what their greatest regret is, it could be on this policy issue or that policy issue, every one of them has come back to something that they wish they had said, but where they self-silenced, believing that President Obama already knew what they felt, believing that the point had already been made. My one regret, which I write a little bit about, was when President Obama decided to go and get congressional authorization mm -hmm. before using force. And I had just come out of the Senate confirmation process, which was no fun and not at the level. It was a lot of posturing. But I looked in the room and I saw there was John Kerry who'd been in the Senate for more than three decades, Chuck Hagel who'd been in the Congress and the Senate, you know, more than a decade, Joe Biden who'd been in the Senate. And I just thought, who am I, who this newbie who's just been through Senate confirmation to say that this is not legislatively feasible, what he's proposing, when we have 70 plus years of legislative experience. And I will never do that again. I, I don't think it would have made a difference. I think President Obama was determined to go to Congress, but I, you know, if, so if it's the speak thought, up, <laughs> it's speak up. It's don't be afraid of being predictable or sounding predictable, even to yourself. Mm -hmm. But it's also be prepared and be rigorous and anticipate what is going to come back at you. And indeed, I think the most effective dissenting viewpoints are those that fully internalize the constraints that the person who isn't agreeing with you feels. President Obama, he didn't need any help being convinced that Syrian civilians were dying, right? He was heartbroken. He was tormented. And so I'm not going to impugn his motives. He cares every bit as much as I do. He may have just come back from Walter Reed and met with wounded Americans from the Afghan war. I haven't had that experience. And so this is where I come back to that first thing I said about having those shared values means you know, in an ideal leadership situation, you're each giving each other the benefit of the doubt, at least in terms of motives. And then you're talking about, okay, what are the consequences likely to be? And don't just measure the consequences of action, but also measure the consequences of inaction, which institutions are famously less good at doing. I'm going to switch gears. When you were ambassador, how often did you travel? I mean, I traveled every week, at least somewhere to Washington or somewhere, but overseas probably once every six weeks or two months. I remember when you took the role reading a magazine profile about you and you had two young children that were very young at the time. And I was reading about your schedule and your travel. And I kept thinking, how are you doing this with two young kids? And it was very obvious in this article that you were a hands-on mom, that family was the top priority for you. And you write about this in the book. What really struck me is when you share your IVF journey. What was it like to go through IVF during this? And for those who don't know about IVF, you are beholden to schedules. Your life and days are timed out. And there is no negotiating when you, when you go to the doctor or when you take the medicine that you have to take. So walk us through what that was like. Okay, so the backdrop is I'm incredibly blessed to have my first son um, in 2009, Declan is his name, born in April of 2009, just a few months after we went into the White House. 
Then we, because I'm older, when I had Declan, I was 38. So we start trying as soon as it seems medically feasible to start trying again. And I succeed in getting pregnant multiple times and have a succession of miscarriages. So by the time we start IVF, it's 2011. And just in the luck of the draw, the timing of my IVF cycles coincides with the outbreak of the Arab Spring. <laughs> so first, the a revolution in Tunisia, which goes... I wanna, I'm going to interrupt you because I want to ask some clarifying questions okay. about this, which is, did you share what you were going through with any of your coworkers, your boss? Let's remind everyone who your boss was. Yes. I initially, when I got to the White House, had this kind of solo mindset. I didn't know anybody really other than the people from the campaign. I was kind of surprised that it was a very male-dominated environment of the 26 senior staff in foreign policy. Six of us were women only. It had a little bit of a kind of locker room feeling that caught me off guard a little bit, but I kind of wasn't sure if I wasn't that effective or feeling very articulate because I was a woman or because I was pregnant then in year one. Um, or because I was the human rights advisor, which is a hard portfolio, or because I was just a novice who didn't know where the hell I was going. <laughs> so there were a lot of theories, but my female colleagues pulled me and the other women aside and said, we are meeting, and we are going to meet every Wednesday night, and we're going to meet, I don't care if it's for 10 minutes or if it's for 45 minutes. We've had Valerie Jarrett on this show before, and she's shared how special those meetings were. Incredible. Each of our offices in national security are a large safe. And so you do the sort of twirl dial to go in, <laughs> and then there'd be like a bottle of wine and cheese. And you know you might only be able to have a sip of wine and have to run back because there was always a crisis. But I mentioned this as context for then when I had my miscarriages and my fertility challenges. This other colleague of mine, Liz Sherwood Randall, had created this very cozy, tiny little escape valve every Wednesday when we were in town and weren't overseas. And thus, when I first was having the heartbreak of believing I was pregnant and then not being pregnant and recovering from that, I shared all of that. And then when I started IVF, these women were completely in my corner right down to you know showing off the big x mark <laughs> on your on your lower back let's say um, and just saying this just Cass is going to have to stick a needle into this thing <laughs> i felt so guilty of course that occasionally during the arab spring in meetings on libya or on syria or egypt I would have to duck out of a principal's meeting, which is the highest level national security meeting. And I would be feeling like I was skulking out of the meeting because I had an egg retrieval that couldn't be rescheduled or an implantation that couldn't be rescheduled. And then I would catch the eye of one of these other women and they'd give me a thumbs up or you go girl. It felt entirely different. It felt like we were team female. That's so you know. incredible. It was amazing. So how did that camaraderie continue or did it, I guess, when you actually have two kids, young kids, and you're going through being a mom and juggling not only just your job and the responsibilities, but the pressure of dealing with things like Syria. My motto in life now, having gone through this experience, is, okay, lean in a bit because What's to disagree with there? Of course, we need to lean in and not internalize the constraints upon us. But my main motto is lean on. I leaned on those women. They made me feel 
seen and cared for in what could be a quite a cutthroat White House environment. Then I get to New York, I'd be, you know, minding my own business, stealing three hours with my son and my daughter, who I wonderfully did have through IVF after several unsuccessful cycles, it finally worked. And so here I had my two kids and we'd be there on a Sunday afternoon, just carving out a little uh, time. And then I'd see on my BlackBerry emergency meeting of the Security Council, Russia's just invaded Crimea. And so I'd call my mother at Mount Sinai and be like, Mom, I need a babysitter. Or I'd call my best friends who are still those women I met in Bosnia who live in New York City, most of them. And so I was at the UN and they were nearby. And I leaned on the thickest network there was. And above all, we had a nanny who, I, you know, people talk about public service, the sacrifices she made so that I could do my public service. She was away from her kids and her grandkids, moved from Washington to be with us in New York. No way could I have done this job without our, our nanny, Maria Castro. Thank you for sharing that. I think a lot of people don't talk about their childcare yeah. and they don't talk about what can be a really lonely journey with fertility. So thank you for sharing that. I've got one more question before we go into the lightning round. What is the conflict or crisis that you think should be on the minds of our listeners that might not be? I mean, I hesitate to say this one because I think it's vaguely on people's minds, but the issue of foreign interference in our democracy, not just by Russia, but also by China, which is putting more and more resources behind it, but also critically, not just in elections. When we're on our social media feeds, when I'm on Twitter, and I am very likely to see Russian-sponsored accounts weighing in on behalf of gun control and on behalf of the NRA, on behalf of Brett Kavanaugh, and on behalf of torpedoing his nomination to the Supreme Court. In other words, what foreign governments are going to do, are doing already, and are going to be doing increasingly, is to seek to widen the cleavages in our democracy in steady state, well and apart from whether they slash people from the voter registration rolls or they go into overdrive with hundreds of millions of dollars worth of amplification around elections. And it is just so sad that because of the particular circumstances of Donald Trump's election that we now have a division in our country over whether we uh, protect our democracy. And this is as fundamental as the way we used to think of national defense in a more traditional, you know, kind of tanks and aircraft carriers way. We have got to protect our debate. We have got to protect our election infrastructure, of course. Um, and we have to vote, which is something that is one of the biggest things that we take on as a company. Just again, we all have to come back to those numbers from 2012 to 2016. Fewer women voted in 2016 than voted in 2012. Fewer young people voted in 2016 than voted in 2012. And 7% of the people who voted for Barack Obama in 2012 chose not to vote in 2016. So well and apart from those who decided to go from Obama in 2012 to President Trump in 2016, we're talking about millions and millions of votes that were just not counted, that were in people's heads or their hearts, uh, but were not expressed. We're going to get the country that we deserve. We have to go out and build the country that we want. We're going to switch to our favorite segment, lightning round. Rules are, we're going to throw questions at you, rapid fire. You have to answer as quickly as possible. Should we do our drum roll? Yes. First job. 
war correspondent in Bosnia, freelancer. You didn't that was like, your first job? like scoop ice cream or babysit oh, or like Del like, Taco Mexican Cafe. There, there we Thank go. you. Roll okay. burritos yes. and tacos. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Thank I thought you meant first real job. No, as that a was your first up. real job. Okay. Yes, worst job. I hate saying this. Working in the U.S. Senate because I hate division. I hate that kind we of can't love agree that you said that. And, yeah. and get things done for people. We have to get things done. What's the last time you negotiated for yourself? Probably promoting my book and just having to tell myself, act as if, act as if, and just demand that this is what has to happen. Who's the first person you call when you get good news? My mother. Bad news? My husband. (laughs) (laughs) I just think you never lose the habit of calling your mother. What's your biggest vice? Oreo ice cream, whole tubs, and far too much Major League Baseball. Just hours wasted with a remote control going from one game to the next. Last show you streamed? Younger. Oh, my God. I love that you love Younger. I love Younger. We binged Younger. Oh, it's the best. Love. Okay. Team team Charles or Team Josh? Can I do lightning round on you? God, it's so hard because it depends the season. I know. Are you caught up? No, I'm actually like two episodes behind. I love Charles, but he got really annoying this season. Okay. I need to catch up on Younger. Okay. Last question. We read you like to play pickup basketball games at the White House. 1A and 1B. 1A, did you let President Obama win? And 1B, who is the best player? Barack Obama is a far better basketball player than me. I did play a lot on the White House grounds, but I have never played one-on-one with President Obama. The one occasion I had to do so, I actually said no to him because I had to go work on the Haiti earthquake response. Oh my God. When I came back to my husband, I said, I think I might, I'm not sure the good that I'm doing on the earthquake <laughs> versus like playing pickup with Obama. And my husband was like, you did Oh, my God. You said no to Obama. I want to go shoot hoops with you. And you said no. And I was like, oh, Haiti earthquake. <laughs> I think you, you made Obama. the right call. I yeah. made the right call. God, Tell my it. husband, please. Ambassador, thank you thank for you. your service. And thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 